Well, we are in between a teaching series right now. We just wrapped up a series that kind of focused on the three different aspects of our transition process. Uh, the process that we've been working through, we heard from leaders, from our vision team, and from our community care and engagement team, and our healing team. And we spent some time kind of focusing on what God has been teaching us in those different areas. And next week, we are going to be heading into a new series that's going to look at some of the ancient practices of faith, at some of those spiritual disciplines that for generations, followers of Christ have been, have been practicing as just ways of staying connected with God and experiencing his presence and his transformation. But before we headed into that series, we wanted to pause for a couple of weeks to focus on a topic that's incredibly important for the church right now. For us here at Evergreen and within the church more broadly. And that's the topic of unity. Unity is a big deal in the moment that we find ourselves in for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's a big deal because it's something that scripture tells us again and again is close to the heart of God. Throughout the New Testament, as the, the first churches were being formed and the gospel was spreading to different communities and the first believers were, were learning to do life together with people that they had always done their best to stay away from, the authors of, of the New Testament books continuously come back again and again to this theme of unity. Ephesians 4 verses 3 to 6, for example, this is the passage you looked at last week. It says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Galatians 3, verses 26 to 28. Uh, in this passage, Paul blows up every social norm in his culture with this statement. He says, so in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have closed yourselves with Christ. Now listen to this. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. Neither slave nor free, nor, there is, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Mind-blowing. In Jesus' final prayer before he goes to the cross, unity is what he prays for, for his followers. Think about that. In Jesus' final prayer for his followers, he doesn't pray that they would have perfect theology. He doesn't pray that they would live perfectly according to the morals and the ethics that he's just been teaching them, right? What he prays is that they would be one. In John 17, verses 20 to 21, Jesus says, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. In scripture, unity isn't just a perk. 
It's not just a nice idea. It's actually central to the gospel. And so unity matters because unity matters to God. And unity matters because it's something that our world is desperately in need of right now. Right? We are living in a world that is full of conflict and hostility. We are living in a world that's polarized and divided. And one of the ways that the church is called to embody the gospel is by being the one place in the world where the categories and labels that separate us dissolve and fall away. By being the one place in the world where people from all kinds of different backgrounds and people who live differently and think differently gather together in love to learn from each other, to grow together, to worship together, because what unites us and holds us together is so much bigger than any of our differences. Last week, Pastor Keith looked at Ephesians chapter 4, and how within the body of Christ, our differences are actually a critical part of what makes us one. Each one of us has unique gifts and skills and experiences, and when we all lean in and engage and use our gifts to serve others, the church is healthy, and together we can reflect God's love to the world in a powerful way. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul says that the the church is like one body that's made up of many parts. And when each part is healthy and doing what it's made to do, the body's strong. But when one part of the body is sick or sore, it impacts the rest of the body as well. When I was a student, one year I spent the summer working at a chocolate factory. It was like my wildest childhood dream come true. And the chocolate factory was a beautiful picture of this, okay? Each uh, part of the machine had a very specific function, and there were stations spread out around the machine that we would rotate through to do quality control, you know, to make sure that all of the chocolates were lined up as they were supposed to be lined up and all of the stickers were stuck in all of the right places and that kind of thing. And when every part of the machine was doing what it was supposed to do, when all of the arms and levers and dials were moving in the right way and at the right time, it was a stunning picture of unity in the midst of diversity, of many parts coming together for one great purpose. And quotas were met, right? The chocolate aisle of the grocery store was stocked. Nobody's Christmas was ruined. It was beautiful. However, the moment something went wrong, the moment one little part of the machine started to malfunction, the whole thing had to be shut down as fast as possible because it would only be a matter of time before one malfunction threw off everything else, right? And before we knew it, we would have a huge mess on our hands. We all love the idea of diversity. 
We love the idea of many different parts coming to do uh, things together that we could never do on our own. But the truth is, in real life, it doesn't always go that smoothly, right? In real life, our differences don't always feel like gifts to be celebrated. Instead, it often feels like our differences drive wedges between us. Often it feels like our differences are the source of all of the conflict and misunderstandings between us. It feels like our differences are the very things that cause all of the malfunction and mess within the body of Christ. If we're honest, when we find ourselves face to face with somebody who sees the world very differently than we do, whether that's because they come from a different background or they align themselves with a different political party or have different perspectives and theology, we don't tend to see their differences as something to celebrate or even to get curious and learn more about. We usually view their differences through the lens of suspicion or fear or judgment. And when we see other people's differences through the lens of suspicion or fear or judgment, we tend to react with either hatred or indifference. We tend to react in one of those two ways, with hatred or indifference. Now, hate is a strong word, right? And we're, we're in Canada, and we are cultured to be the kinds of people who apologize to door frames when we accidentally bump into them, right? Just me. <laughs> Most of us don't have a very long list of people that we would go so far as to say that we hate. But we all have people that get under our skin. We all have people that, for whatever reason, are kind of like, the oil to our water that just kind of bump up against our personality. And sometimes we let those feelings of animosity consume us, even if we wouldn't go so far as to like slash their tires, right? <laughs> Hate doesn't always look that, look that way. Sometimes we just let it stew inside, right? We stew with anger and resentment. We might speak harshly to someone or make passive aggress uh, aggressive comments every time they say something, or we might talk about them behind their back or exclude them from conversations or from get-togethers. Right? However, however it is that we express it or don't express it, when we hate somebody, we have those strong feelings towards them. Right? We have those feelings, and it's not hard to see how hatred, whether uh, we would go so far as to call it hatred or whether we might call it something a little bit softer and more socially appropriate, it's not hard to see how it can destroy the unity within our communities. But other people's differences don't always send us that far. They don't always send us spiraling into like hatred or animosity towards them. Hating somebody actually takes up quite a bit of energy, right? It ties us to another person. It means that we're giving them a lot of attention in our hearts and in our minds. Sometimes when we look at other people's differences through the lens of suspicion, instead of hatred, we respond with indifference. 
We just stay away from them. We just keep our distance. We let them do their own thing over there and we don't really let it bother us as long as they don't come too close, right? With their bad theology, their immoral ways of living or their political views, whatever it might be. And in our world where tolerance is seen as a value, it's easy to settle for indifference or even to see indifference as a virtue. In a world that's as divided and uh, whereas that there's as much polarization as ours, it's easy to see indifference as actually like a goal, right? That we should be striving towards. But here's the thing. As followers of Jesus, we aren't called to tolerance. Tolerance doesn't go far enough. Right? Jesus doesn't call us to just live and let live. He doesn't call us to just put up with each other or to coexist. Jesus calls us to love. And love requires proximity. Love requires engagements. It requires that we get to know each other and celebrate each other's strengths and make space for each other's weaknesses as we do life together and follow Jesus together. So how do we get there? How do we live into this picture of unity that scripture paints for us? How do we gather together as a diverse group of people from all kinds of different backgrounds with all of our quirks and actually be a community that's known for our love. That's what Jesus says we're called to, right? In John 13, verse 35, he says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. How do we get there? This morning, we are going to look at a passage from the book of James. James is a book in the New Testament that has a lot to say about unity. And the book of James is a letter, but it's, it's a different kind of letter than the ones that we tend to read that were written by Paul. Paul's letters were usually written to specific communities, and in his letters, Paul's usually addressing just very specific uh, conflicts and issues that that church was navigating. But the book of James is more of a general letter. It was written to Jewish believers that were scattered throughout Judea. And it's kind of like a summary of James's wisdom and teaching. Now, James was writing in a time when the believers in his community were going through incredibly difficult times. They'd kind of endured one social disaster after another and it was wearing on them. There had been a famine in their community. Um, a lot of people were experiencing poverty, financial difficulty. Uh, people were being persecuted. The Christians were being persecuted by the Romans. And in the midst of all of these pressures, there were all kinds of factions and divisions that had broken out within the Christian community. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> Right? We've, we've experienced this over uh, the last few years. We've experienced the same kind of phenomenon. And when we go through widespread social crisis and everyone's kind of dealing with their own combination of stress 
and anxiety and grief, it's only a matter of time before the pressure starts to take a toll on our communities. And that's what was happening at the time that James wrote this letter. And so one of James's main concerns is in a very practical way, getting to the root of all of the conflict and pointing people towards the unity that comes from keeping Christ at the center. And when James kind of zooms out and looks at all of the conflict and does his assessment of what's gone off course and diagnoses the problem, what he says is something very interesting. James says that at the heart of all of the conflict that was breaking out in the churches was a misunderstanding about wisdom. Now, I don't know about you, when I think about what's at the heart of conflict that kind of bubbles up in Christian communities, wisdom isn't the first thing that comes to my mind. Wisdom isn't something that we really tend to think too much about in our culture, right? We put a high value on knowledge, right? We live in a world where we have constant access to information. We walk around with these little gadgets in our pockets, right, that can give us the answer to just about any question, any random question that could pop into our brains. We have more information at our fingertips than human beings have have ever had throughout all of human history. But having more knowledge at our fingertips has not resulted (laughs) in more unity in our world. When James talks about wisdom, he's not talking about how much we know. He's talking about something different, something that has the potential to transform us and to transform our communities. So let's have a look. James 3, verses 13 to 18 Uh, James opens up this section of his letter with a question in verse 13. I'm going to give you a second to flip there in your Bibles. I know you all all have your physical Bibles here, right? You're turning, you're turning. I'm just going to grab a drink. (laughs) James 3, verse 13. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? So James throws this question out and he just lets it hang in the air for a minute to kind of assess his listeners, to give them the opportunity to do a little bit of a self-examination and to decide whether they believe that they are wise, whether they believe that they're the kinds of people who are understanding, who just kind of get it, you know, when it comes to life. So I want you to imagine James putting this question out to our community here, putting this question out to you. Who is wise and understanding among you? How do you respond when you hear that question? Do you see yourself as somebody who just kind of gets it, who knows what's what, who knows how to make good decisions, who sees things clearly? Would you consider yourself to be somebody who's wise and understanding? And then James goes on to say this. He says, let them show it 
by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. So James is an incredibly practical guy. James has no patience for abstract theology that isn't lived out in real life. He's not interested, not interested in it. And so he says, if you're wise and understanding, prove it, prove it. And then he gives two pieces of evidence that give away whether or not somebody is wise. The first one is good deeds. He says, being wise is not about what you know. It's not about being really smart. It's not about having all the right answers. Wisdom is only wisdom if it impacts the way we live. So James says, if you're wise, prove it by the way you live and by your humility. Now there's a plot twist, right? Anybody who came in hot, was really confident that they were wise and understanding, is now being told that humility is a marker of wisdom. Somebody who's really quick to say that they're wise might be kind of struggling a little bit in the humility department. Right? And so right away, James offers a little bit of correction. He says, if you're wise, you're going to have a posture of humility. Now, what is humility? Sometimes we think that being humble means putting ourselves down all the time, right? Believing that we're no good. But that's actually far from the truth. Danielle Strickland defines humility as agreeing with God about who you are. It's about the best definition I've come across. Agreeing with God about who you are. So humility actually means living with an awareness that we're loved by God, that we've been uniquely created by God and gifted by God. But it also means living with an awareness that we're broken and that we're fully dependent on God. And we're dependent on God for healing, for wholeness, for wisdom, for strength, for salvation. We're fully dependent on God. C.S. Lewis defines humility this way. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. There's a freedom that comes with humility. There's a freedom that allows us to shift our focus away from ourselves and towards God and others. So James says, if you're wise, prove it by the way that you live and with a posture of humility. In verse 14, he goes on to say, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. So, 
James is not the kind of guy to beat around the bush, right? He says it like it is. And here he says that there's something that the world sees as wisdom that's actually the opposite of wisdom. As a matter of fact, he says that this quote unquote wisdom comes from the enemy and that it's the source of all kinds of destruction and disorder. And then he gives two characteristics that describe the worldly wisdom that he's talking about. Bitter envy and selfish ambition. Now, none of us wanna see ourselves as being bitter Right, or being jealous of others or as having selfish ambition. But the truth is that these tendencies are incredibly subtle, especially when they first start to take root in our lives. James says that they're so subtle that we can even lie to ourselves about what's going on and find ourselves proud and boasting about things that are actually evil. And I mean, think about it. How often do we find ourselves comparing ourselves to others? Especially with social media, right, in our culture now. We're constantly comparing our lives to other people's highlight reels. And it's so easy to find ourselves in a position where we're looking at someone else's stuff or opportunities or popularity or appearance or families and feeling like we don't measure up. I'm feeling like it isn't fair, or feeling like we need to work extra hard to prove our value and our worth. Someone once said, comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is the thief of joy. I think we can all relate to that. And the Apostle James would say that comparison is also the thief of unity, It's what's at the heart of the bitter envy, right, that he's talking about in this passage. And it's so easy to kind of fall into that trap. And selfish ambition, well, selfish ambition is really just our default setting, right? I mean, one of the first words that we learn as toddlers is mine, mine, Right? I hear it all the time around this place. Mine, at the daycare, at the daycare. <laughs> to be clear. <laughs> Mine, right? And as we grow up, we really just find kind of sneakier, more socially appropriate ways of saying the exact same thing. On our own, we are wired to focus on our own wants and our own needs and to put them ahead of the needs of others. And we can even convince ourselves that we are entitled to it, that we deserve it, and that our way is the best way. And so we're really doing everyone else a favor (laughs) when we get what we want anyways, right? And when everyone's functioning that way, it's not hard to see why we run into so many challenges in our communities. I love how Eugene Peterson translates this part of the passage in the message. He says, mean-spirited ambition isn't wisdom. Boasting that you're wise isn't wisdom. 
Twisting the truth to make yourselves sound wise isn't wisdom. It's the furthest thing from wisdom. It's animal cunning, devilish plotting. Listen to this. Whenever you're trying to look better than others or get the better of others, things fall apart and everyone ends up at the other's throats. Is that just so true? Whenever you're trying to look better than others or get the better of others, things fall apart and everyone ends up at the other's throats. But here's the good news. There is another way. There is another way. James goes on to describe the kind of wisdom that comes from above. The kind of wisdom that leads to unity. In verse 17, he says this. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, and sincere. So James gives seven characteristics that describe the wisdom that comes from God. And they're different than what we might expect, right? This is what he says. First of all, he says, wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure. It wants what's right and what's good. It's pure. Then he says, wisdom from heaven is peace-loving. Peace-loving. And whenever scripture talks about peace... It's never just talking about tolerance or like a lack of conflict. The biblical understanding of peace is shaped by the Hebrew word shalom. And shalom means wholeness. It's living with a sense of completeness and harmony with God, with others, and within ourselves, and with the world. Mm -hmm. Shalom exists where things are as they should be where things are as God designed them to be. So true wisdom always seeks to bring about peace. Wisdom is considerate. Other versions of the Bible translate that word there as gentle. Wisdom is gentle. James says somebody who's really wise genuinely cares about others, treats them with compassion. Wisdom is submissive. Oof. Hey, we don't, we don't really like that one, do we? We don't, we don't love the word submissive. Other translations say willing to yield. James says people who are wise don't always need to get their own way. They don't need, always need to prove that they're right. They're not always digging in their heels. People who are truly wise are willing to learn from others. They're willing to change their minds if they realize that they were wrong. They're willing to set aside their own agenda and to put others first. Wisdom's full of mercy. Someone who's wise is gentle with other people's weaknesses and failures. Wisdom treats other people with grace compassion, and good fruit. So again, James says, wisdom motivates us to action. 
Those who are truly wise pour themselves out in good deeds and acts of love towards others. Wisdom is impartial. The NLT translates that as shows no favoritism. So wisdom doesn't give other people labels and treat them differently based on how much money they make or what political party they vote for or how much value our society says that they have or don't have. Wisdom treats every human being with dignity as someone who is made in the image of God. And lastly, James says the wisdom that comes from heaven is sincere. Someone who's wise is real, genuine. They're not trying to always make themselves look important or smart, right? They're content to just be themselves, to be who God made them to be. So one of the uh, silver linings of being sick, I don't know if you find this, one of the silver linings for me of being sick is having the opportunity to catch up on mindless Netflix series, am I right? You know, you just don't want to move and all you can just do is press the button. Um, And so over the last week, one of the shows that I discovered is called, Is It Cake? (laughs) Has anyone seen that show? It's amazing, so good. And I'm, it's, it's a baking show. I'm not usually into baking shows. If you know me, you know that I don't really shine in the kitchen. Um, But this show is an exception. It's a competition where cake artists design cakes that are virtually indistinguishable from ordinary, everyday objects. And there's a panel of judges that has to try to tell which of the items is actually cake. And for example, there's uh, one episode where there are five different sneakers, right? And one of the sneakers is actually cake. And it's up to the judges to kind of stand back, to have a look, and to try to pick it out, to try to figure out which one is cake. And I kid you not, like, it's hard. Like, they get it wrong. Like, these bakers are ridiculously talented, Uh, when it comes to making cakes that look indistinguishable from real-life objects. It's quite a skill. And it's only when the host of the show just cuts into the items to see what's inside that you can really know for sure whether you're looking at a shoe or whether you're looking at cake. And in this passage, James kind of paints two different pictures of wisdom. And he asks us to take an honest look inside to figure out whether we are living our lives guided by this false, deceptive wisdom or whether we're being guided by the true wisdom that comes from God. He essentially says there's a way of living that from the outside can look like wisdom. There's a way of living that will get you ahead in the world that will have other people giving you status and recognition. There's a way of living that the world will say makes you successful, that the world will say makes you important, that the world will say will bring you peace and comfort. But it's cake. It's not real wisdom. Actually, it's from the enemy, and if you're not careful, it will destroy you, and it will destroy your relationships, and it will destroy your communities. But there's this other kind of wisdom 
true wisdom, God's wisdom, wisdom that comes from heaven, that frees us up to love others well, to reflect God's peace and joy into the world, and to live with a unity that's deep enough and wide enough to make space for all of our differences because it's Christ that holds us all together. So where does this wisdom come from? How do we cultivate real wisdom in our lives? It's tempting to read a passage like this and to walk away believing that we need to try harder, right? That we need to work really hard to be less focused on ourselves and to be more humble and more gentle and more kind with others. But this wisdom from above, James says, does not come from within ourselves. It's not something that we can make happen by our own effort. In chapter one, James tells us very clearly where real wisdom comes from. Listen to this. James chapter one, verse five says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. Pretty simple. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding faults and it will be given to you. Wisdom is a gift from God and it's a gift that God loves to give generously to his children. He's not stingy with them. Our job is to ask him for it. That's our job, to ask him for it. Not just once, not to just check it off of a to-do list, right? But to continually ask God for wisdom as we go about our day-to-day lives. And to open ourselves up to the transforming power of his spirit working in us. See, it's only God's love filling us and uh, transforming us that frees us to love others. It's only when we realize that we have everything that we need in him that we can be healed and whole and stop pushing for our own way all the time. It's only when we find our identity and our value in Christ that we can stop competing and comparing ourselves to others. And it's God's spirit that empowers us to see the beauty in one another and to celebrate our differences so that we can be a community that reflects the image of God more fully as we live together in unity. James wraps up this section of his letter with verse 18, which is kind of like a little proverb that he wants to leave us with. He says this, Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Isn't that beautiful? Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. What I love about James is that he's just so realistic. Right? He doesn't say, so there you go. That's how it's done. Get it together. Fix all of the churches. <laughs> right? Not at all. Instead, he says, you know what? This whole unity thing doesn't come together in one fell swoop. 
Become a, becoming a community that embodies this wisdom I've just described isn't something that you can breathe into being at a weekend conference. It's actually gonna feel a lot more like planting seeds. Has anyone here ever planted a seed? It doesn't feel like you're doing very much in the moment, does it? Seeds are small, they seem insignificant. When you take a tiny little seed and you toss it in the dirt, doesn't really feel like much has changed, right? Doesn't feel like anything significant has happened. But eventually, if you take care of it in time, eventually, new life starts to burst forward. And every time we let God define what it looks like to live a life of wisdom, every time we sacrifice for others or build others up or work out our disagreements in a way that leads to peace and unity. Every time we go out of our way to help someone who needs us or step into someone else's shoes and try to see things from their perspective. Every time we set aside our own preferences for the good of those around us. It's like we're planting seeds. We're opening up opportunities for love to break in and to change us. We're embracing the ways of the kingdom of God, which Jesus says is like a mustard seed. I mean, it's small and it seems insignificant, but it's something that has the power to turn into something bigger than we could ever imagine. Every moment of every day, every interaction that we have with other people is an opportunity to sow in peace to let God's wisdom lead us and guide us, to be people whose lives are defined by love. This picture of wisdom that James paints is the way forward to living in unity as God's people. It's the way forward to reflecting the good news of God's kingdom to our broken and fractured world. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come on up to the front. James tells us that when we need wisdom, all we need to do is just ask God for it. And that God loves to give us wisdom, right? He loves to give his children wisdom. And so this morning as we wrap up, we're just going to take a moment to just do that right now, to take, take a moment to pause and to ask God for wisdom in those areas of our lives where we need to receive his wisdom, And so let's pray together and then I'm gonna invite you to just enter into a bit of time of reflection with me. God, we thank you that you are wisdom. We thank you that you are a God who knows what's best. And so often we try to take the reins and live lives our own way. And um, we feel the fractured relationships. We feel uh, the pain inside of us that comes along with that. And so God, I pray that this morning you would once again just orient our hearts towards you. That you would help us to be people who live just with this this constant sense of openness to your spirit, who ask you for wisdom and then who respond to the ways that you provide it as gift in our lives. God, let us be a community who lives by your wisdom. Amen. So first I'm gonna invite you to just take a moment, to take a few deep breaths and to just center yourself in God's presence. Just let yourself be reminded that God is here. 
that he's as close as the air that you're breathing, that he knows everything that's going on in your heart, in your mind, and that he loves you, that he loves you, that his grace is for you. First, I'm going to invite you to think about an area of your life where you've been struggling with envy or selfish ambition. There are little things that sneak into all of our lives in different ways. Just take a moment to reflect on that now. In your own life, where have you been struggling with envy or with selfish ambition? And just take a moment to hold that before God in prayer. Ask for his grace. Ask for his healing. Just open yourself up to his love in that area. And I'm going to invite you to reflect on an area of your life where you need to receive God's wisdom. And remembering what James 1 verse 5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. Just ask God now for his wisdom. Just hold that area of your life before God in prayer and open yourself up to his spirit. God, we just leave these things in your hands. We thank you that you are a God who is generous, that you are a God who provides. Help us to live our lives according to your wisdom as we leave here this morning. Amen.